We are getting close to the end. We've got two more series in the I Have Sin series. Uh, we are talking about the humbled sinner today. Uh, and then next week we're going to close out with the blessed sinner. And I think it's been a good series and I've been glad to be able to, to walk us through it. And more than anything, when I'm usually prepping, I'm feeling convicted myself of so many different things as, as I dive into the Word of God. And, and that's been my prayer is that you're experiencing that as well. Well, we, we all know a bull. A bull is a massive animal, about 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. And uh, they've said in some cases can get up to 3,500 pounds. So it's a massive animal. Uh, and they say well, if a bull gets moving, it can actually get going to about 35 miles an hour. So think about that massive weight coming at you at that speed. I mean, that, that is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, it's not surprising that when we, we see a bull run into someone and it just flicks this animal or, or it just casts them aside like some sort of rag doll. Or we've seen in the movies, you know, where the person gets caught in the... Um, gets caught in the bull's pen and it's just terrified and they just want to get out of there. And that's completely understandable. Well, for as powerful as a bull is, a very simple solution that they have found uh, to keep a bull under control is to put a ring in its nose. That by doing a very simple little thing of just a ring in its nose, they can help keep that bull under control, right? Because the nose is a very sensitive part. Uh, and even for us, I mean, think about it. How many times have you plucked a nose hair uh, or you've gotten hit and you've, you've felt that intense pain that goes on? Well, it's no different for a bull. And so what they do is they put the ring in and then they just attach a rope to it. And that bull can now be led and guide anywhere that it wants to go. And this massive animal now becomes a very docile creature by that little act. Well, we're going to be talking about the Judean king Manasseh today, uh, who is going to experience the nose ring both literally and figuratively uh, as we go through. And I know we've been hitting some of these kings of Israel and Judah pretty hard lately, uh, but you know, you have these leaders of God's people, and they're to be great leaders and lead them into to godliness. And instead, what we find is that many of these leaders just continue to re lead them their people uh, into pagan idolatry, into destruction and demise, and God is constantly stepping in with the prophets and reminding them, hey, this is what's going to happen if you don't get your act together. So you need to make sure that you're following God. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2, King, 2 Chronicles 33, 2 Chronicles 33. Uh, and the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles are very similar. Uh, they both are talking about the events of, of the split kingdom and God's people as they move forward. Kings was written first, and it tends to portray God's people in more of a negative light. Uh, it tends to portray God's people in their sin. Uh, and it really is kind of reminding them of, listen, you're experiencing what you're experiencing because you refuse to follow me. Uh, and the book of Chronicles comes later and it's written, again, the same information, but it's written much more in a positive tone and about the hope. And it's much more of an encouragement for the people that as they've come back from exile, you've experienced the punishment. But but continue to seek God and continue to live in his blessing uh, and, and the joy of following him. 
And so it carries that more positive tone. And a few weeks ago, we talked about Hezekiah. Hezekiah in generational sin, right? His father did awful, and he said, I'm not going to follow the same path. And he changes uh, from what his father had done. He abandons the evil, and he seeks the Lord. Well, after Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh takes over. And unfortunately, all of the reforms that Hezekiah tried to do, Manasseh goes back on and leads the people back into uh, idolatry, and he goes and he goes through that process. So we're gonna we're gonna take a look here at what Manasseh has done and how God is going to play into all of that. So Second Chronicles thirty three, uh, starting in verse one, it said Manasseh was twelve years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem fifty five years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to the starry host and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry host. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes, I will put my name forever." I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers, if only they would be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention." So Manasseh, like many of these other kings, does evil. And what does he do? He puts up the high places. And, and the idea of the high places was is you tried to get as high as you possibly could on a mountain or on a hill and worship from there because what their thoughts and beliefs were was that the higher up I am, the closer I was to the gods and they would be more likely to listen to me. Uh, and so he rebuilds all of these high places. They begin to worship to the pagan gods. He, he consults the sorcerers, the witches crafts again. He, he sacrifices his own sons uh, on the altar to these pagan gods. And he desecrates the, ta- the temple and he puts all of these idols back into the temple. Right. So his dad just got them out and Manasseh's like, I'm going to put them back in there of where I think they belong. And so it says that he does more evil than the nations around him. He was so bad that he was worse than all of these other nations that God was trying to get rid of. And let's just hop over really quick to 2 Kings 21, just to kind of see a little bit more of the context here. Um, 2 Kings 21, verses 10 to 16, it said, The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He did more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. 
I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit. So they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So again, Manasseh is a really bad guy, right? Uh, in 2 Chronicles 33.10, it says the Lord spoke, but they paid no attention. He refuses to listen to God. He continues to do evil after evil. Uh, he's killing the innocent at this point. And it, he's so bad that God basically says, I, I'm done. I'm going to wipe my people out. I have had it with them. I've had it with Manasseh. You guys are done. You're going to be looted and plundered. And the enemies are going to come. And they're going to take you away. So think about that for a moment. If God said to you, you are the final straw. I have had enough because of what you have done. I mean, think about how bad that must have been that Manasseh is the one that pushes God over the edge. That is the kind of evil that is now lingering in the hearts of God's people because of what Manasseh has done. And so, 2 Chronicles 33 11. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, and bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. So God says, I've had enough. And this is it. This is the final straw. And so he brings the Assyrians in. And he says, now the Assyrians are going to deal with you. Because you refuse to listen to me. You refuse to follow my commands. And so God's people are brought into captivity. And they're taken away. And Manasseh is literally led by shackles. And in some, some uh, translations might use fetters, which is around the feet. And he literally has a hook put through his nose. And he's led off into captivity. Now the Assyrians were a pretty ruthless group of people. They had dominated the Middle East this time, and, and they were known to not only put hooks through people's nose, but they would have put them through people's ears or their hands, or, or they would have put them through their lips uh, as a degrading way of demoralizing the enemies. They were known to skin their captives of lives, and they were known to set them on fire. Okay, so we're talking about a really ruthless group of people that God has sent in to deal with this picture. But there it is. For all that Manasseh has done, for all of the evil that he has committed, he's shuffling away, led by hook to a foreign place. This once mighty, powerful king over God's people has now been subjected to such humiliation. And the scriptures tell us, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And see, we love this stuff, don't we? 
We go, yeah, Manasseh got his comeuppance, didn't he? He deserved what he got. We, we love the fact that here was this evil man and, and, and he, I mean, he burned his own children. He, he gave his children over to a pagan God to die. And we are so glad that God steps in and just like some animal hook and toe, Manasseh is led away and justice has been served because God is a God of justice. Is he not? So let's continue. Verse 12. In his distress, talking about Manasseh, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And the Manasseh knew the Lord is God. So there he is in captivity and he's suffering and he, he's dealing with losing his kingdom and he's dealing with now being a captive. And, and he, he reaches out to God and he says, God, this is it. I, I've had enough. And he seeks the Lord's favor. And what does it say? It says that he humbled himself. He, he, he took a lowly position. He emptied himself. He, he put himself in a mind and position that said, God, I'm, I'm beneath all things. That's, that's where I'm at, God. I get it. I get how bad I was. And so it's not just this outward demeanor of sorrowful, but in his heart, he truly is repentant of what he has done. So he cries out to God and he prays and he pleads. He says, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And so what does God do? God denies this evil man. He takes the key and he throws it into the ocean. And he says, you're never getting out of here, Manasseh. You are going to suffer for the rest of your life for all the things that you've done. What does God do? God hears him. And he brings him back to Jerusalem. And he gives him back the kingdom. Wait a minute. God, you're a God of justice. God, this is a child killer. We don't put these people back on the street. These are the people that should be locked away forever. But you're telling me that after two years of captivity, he, he, he gets to come back and he gets to have his kingdom back. And, and sure, he's still going to be a vassal king to Assyria, but... But, but he, he's going to be back in authority and you're just going to let him lead your people again? God, this isn't right. Something's wrong here, God. I, I think that you don't know what you're doing. And so we're probably scratching our heads and going, this doesn't make any sense. Verse 14. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city again, talking about Manasseh. West of the Gion Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and encircling the hill of Ophiel, he also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all of the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as the altars he had built in the temple hill in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. 
And then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. And the other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words the seer spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all of his sins and unfaithfulness. And the sites where he built high places and he set up the Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself. All are written in the records of the seers. And Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace. And Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. So he comes back and he rebuilds the city. And he gets rid of all the foreign gods. And he gets rid of the gods and the idols in the temple. He says, we've got to get rid of this. And, and we, need to, we need to go back to the altars. And we need to thank God. And we need to make sacrifices for our sins. Because Manasseh has a truly change of heart. And he dies and he rests with his fathers. So that's it. Manasseh does all of this evil. And he leads the people astray. And he, he kills his own children. And he says, God, I'm sorry. And God says, come on back. It's okay now. That, that's the way this works. Again, it doesn't sound fair. I mean, didn't it say he was worse than all of the pagan nations that God wanted to destroy? And he just has a change of heart and he says, I'm sorry. And he goes, you can have everything back now. There's no punishment. There's no consequences. There's a couple things we need to think about here. First off, we need to be very careful how we live. Because there are just some things that we cannot undo. So even though Manasseh comes back and he tries to lead his people into reform and following God, he set a really, really bad precedent before that. And what did it say there in verse 17? The people continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. See, he had set such a precedent to follow these pagan nations that became who they were as a group of people. And as much as he tried to get them to follow, there still was a part of them that followed the old Manasseh. And you know what? When he dies, his son Ammon takes over and he continues all of the wickedness of his father. So I know we make mistakes and I know we hurt people. And we like to think that a simple I'm sorry will fix everything. But there are times where we were going to leave permanent scars on people and we can't undo the damage that we have done. So we need to live in a manner at every moment that seeks to honor the Lord and follow his will and to do good and love people. That our words and our actions need to always be uplifting and encouraging and not destructive. Because there are just some things that we just can't take back. Now, don't get me wrong. God can bring healing and Christ brings forgiveness to that. But again, sometimes we hurt people in a way 
that will forever alter them and put them down a path we don't want to see them on. The other thing we need to think about is men like Manasseh is going to challenge us. It's going to challenge our faith, and it's going to challenge our understanding about who God is. So we, we've all seen the horrors of this world, right? We, we have seen the devastation of what world wars have caused. We have seen machines that are designed for maximum death. We've seen innocent people slaughtered and we've seen the innocent imprisoned. We've seen the corporate greed and the scammers that have swindled the elderly and people out of their retirement savings and have made them poor for the rest of their lives. We have seen the, the tribal wars in countries and nations like in Africa and the child soldiers. We've seen the gangs that exist in this country and as a result, children are slain at birthday parties. We, we've seen the powerful abuse and we've seen the caretakers neglect. We live in a world that is riddled by the horrors of sin. And when people say, if God is good, why is there such evil? And it's that thought and that idea that becomes an obstacle for many of their faith. And I understand that. Because again, what do we want? We want justice. We want God to step in like he promises and says, God's going to do good. People should be punished for how they harm people in this world. And don't get me wrong, I, I think people should be punished for what they do in this world. I, I think there should be a sense of justice. But we also have to consider where our hearts lie in this. Because we need to understand that sometimes in our minds, justice never seems to end. We want to keep punishing and punishing and punishing and punishing and punishing until the nth degree. See, we look at people and go, you know what? I'll forgive the liar. I'll forgive the lazy. Matter of fact, you know what? I'll even go on and I'll forgive the alcoholic. But there are some people I don't want to forgive. It's the murderers. It's the rapists. It's the abusers of young little children who have done nothing wrong. Those are the people that I don't want to forgive. And those are the people that we say, you know what? Those are the people that should rot in hell. And I read stories about Manasseh. I mean, that, that was it. We had two verses where he says, God, I'm sorry. And God's like, oh, okay, that's it. Come on back. I mean, where, where's, the, where's David's chapter? Remember he had a chapter in Psalms where he, he pours out his entire heart. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I should see before God brings him back. I mean, that's just a really, really evil guy. And it just seems like he gets away with it. And it, it just seems like God's sense of justice is not the kind of justice that I would expect. But you know, as I read other parts of Scripture, I think of Zacchaeus, the guilt-ridden tax collector who approaches Christ and says, God, what do I need to do 
to say I'm sorry. God, if I have to pay back people four times what I've done, I'm willing to do it. You know, I think about the criminal on the cross who hang next to Jesus. And I think this must have been a really bad guy because you don't, you don't hang on a cross because you stole a loaf of bread. Right? The crucifixion was reserved for people that were really evil in the eyes of the Romans. And so his whole life he does wrong. And there he hangs on the cross in the last moment. And he defends Jesus against another criminal. And he turns to him and he says, Jesus, remember me. And there Jesus hanging on the cross says, today you'll will you with me in paradise. He spends his whole life as a sinner. And in the very last moments, he's redeemed. What about the story of Saul? Right? Saul, the persecutor and killer of Christians. He's terrorizing God's people. And then he has a come to Jesus moment. And God says, now you're going to be the greatest missionary of the early church. And Saul becomes Paul. And Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners. And then he dies for his faith. See, when I, when I look at people like that, I start to realize, I think I have it wrong. I think I don't have the right attitude. It's not an easy concept, right? We have to balance grace and mercy against the scales of justice. And this is always what we want is justice, right? We want to say that we're gracious and merciful, but we look at some people and say, you don't deserve it. All you deserve is justice. Because, see, I'm willing to demand everyone else's head because I don't see myself as evil. I just see everyone else's sinfulness. But Manasseh, Zacchaeus, the criminal at the cross, Paul, they all saw something that we often don't. They were able to see just how sinful they were. And so what did they do? They looked at their depravity and they humbled themselves. And see, sometimes God has to bring us to our knees to realize that. Sometimes God has to bring death to our front door and say, you're at the end here. I'm trying to let you have one more chance. I'm trying to give you that last opportunity, that final moment. that you need to realize what you need is a savior. Again, in verse 10, right, he tries to warn him and, and he wouldn't listen. So God said, fine, I'm going to put a hook in your nose and I'm going to make you listen to me. But Manasseh got it. He humbled himself. He recognized his lowly position. He pleaded with God. And he said, God, I'm sorry. And when he was given a second chance, what did he do? He served the Lord. He did not waste the rest of his life. James 4.10 tells us that if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. See, if we're willing to be a humble sinner, God will raise us up despite the things that we have done. And that's what we need to realize. 
that just because you and I don't kill people doesn't mean we're not bad people. See, we're not sent to hell because of the level or degree of our sin. We are sent to hell because we are sinners regardless of what we have done. And I'm not saying, again, people shouldn't stand in a court of law and, and have to answer for what they've done in this world. But I think the problem is, too often we like to play judge and jury. We like to stand at the gates of hell and we like to, uh, the gates of heaven, excuse me, and we like to decide who gets in and who doesn't. And we look at all of the things that they've done in their lives and we say, you're not good enough, you can't get in. But see, you and I do not have that authority to open or shut that gate. That belongs to God and God alone. And what has God said? See, this is how it works. God said, if you're willing to humble yourself, if you're willing to embrace the sacrifice of my son on the cross, then you can have access to my kingdom. So it didn't matter what Manasseh had done. It didn't matter what Zacchaeus had done. It didn't matter what the criminal had done. It didn't matter what Paul has done. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what I have done. And it doesn't matter how many times you've been in jail. And it doesn't matter how many times that you've done wrong. But God says, if you are willing to humble yourself and recognize your need for me, then I will be your savior. You know, God doesn't have to save us. God didn't have to forgive us. But God does it because he loves us. And that love is an extension to every person that walks in this earth. Because every person that walks this earth is created by God. And it is his creation that he loves. And you know what makes this all the much sweeter? Is when I think about what Jesus has done. Because, see, all those guys were willing to humble themselves. But out of Christ's love, Christ humbled himself for us. Let me give you a couple verses. Philippians 2, 6-8. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made humble, being made in human likeness. And he found appearance in, as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Matthew 20, 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, he gave his life for a ransom. Second Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when you and I couldn't and when you and I wouldn't, Christ did what we desired not to do. When we wouldn't and couldn't humble ourselves, God sent his son and he said, I will empty myself out. I will humble myself and I will take a low position for my children to redeem them and save them. 
And so to finish this off, I, a quote from a commentator as he speaks about the life of Manasseh, he says this. He says, the Bible constantly affirms that God's door remains open to anyone, even after what should have been, what should have been closing time. God's door remains open even after it should have been closing time. Guys, if we are willing to humble ourselves, God is willing to save. Let's pray. Lord, we don't deserve your love. We are wretched by nature. Lord, we are sinners at the core. Lord, there is nothing good about us. And Lord, the scales of justice should be tipped against us that, uh, Lord, we should be punished. We should be cast out of your presence. But Lord, you've chosen not to do it because of your great love and mercy. And Lord, I know that we are so guilty that we look at this world and we just think those are evil people and they deserve to die. But Lord, you, you look at them and say, but they're my children and I want them to live. And so I'm giving them that opportunity through Christ. Give us hearts of compassion. Give us hearts of mercy. Lord, let us not play judge and jury, but let us be a conduit of your love. Let us be willing to share the good news and the hope of the gospel that no matter what, Lord, if, we, if there is still breath in our lungs, if we are still able to think, Lord, there is always a chance for even the greatest of what we would say is sinners, the, the, the worst of the worst, the lost of the lost, Father, that there is always a chance at redemption, that there is always hope and forgiveness in you. Lord, let that be my heart and my mind as I walk into this world, not ready to condemn, but to point them to a Savior that loves. Amen.